Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening at the beginning of a new week, and thank you for tuning into ADH TV. Now, the ADH TV app is now available on the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. You just search ADH and you can download it and watch me for free. Think about that, live and on demand on your television. If you go to the App Store on Apple TV or the Google Play Store, if you download on there, it means you can watch on the big screen. Well, a big day in Canberra today, I've mixed feelings about it. I'll have more to say later. Put it this way, Peter Dutton is the authentic and principled leader that the Liberal Party needs right now after their hopeless lurch to the left and the constant chatter about how the party should be. Can you believe even more left-wing than what it already is? That's something Peter Dutton will stop, I can assure you. When it comes to being tough, he's proven. But just like what the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet has to endure, Peter Dutton will have to line up next week to a weak National Party. The Nationals voted today to oust the very successful Barnaby Joyce from the top job. The move is the beginning of the end, marked by words, for the National Party. Barnaby Joyce is one of the best retail politicians of our time, and the people in the bush love him. He talks their talk. So David Little, proud another Queenslander, will be the leader of the National Party and line up next to Peter Dutton. I'll have something to say about him shortly. Little Proud was a former banker, and you know what they say about bankers. His deputy is the unknown and totally untested Perrin Davy, who's been three years in the parliament. Good God. How this will go down in regional constituencies, I have a fair idea, not well. Barnaby held the fort, and despite a huge anti-Morrison sentiment out there and three retiring national MPs, he campaigned day in, day out and gave it to Labor. The Nats held all their seats, and was so close to picking up two more. Little Proud was missing in action on the campaign trail, too busy thinking about his own political ambition. Paul Keating said once of politics that in the end you get taken out in a box. And that's what's occurred here. A totally unjustified challenge, just pure ambition from someone who has achieved little in his political life and has no affinity with regional Australians. Anyway, let me know what you think. You can email me, Jones at ADH. TV. OK, let me make some points about wild and inaccurate conclusions drawn from last Saturday week's election result. The first is that if the Liberals think they can be led by the nose, by the left wing of the party, into victory at the next election, forget it. Further decimation will lie ahead. The second point, which proves the first, is that the spurious argument that victory by the Teals and the Greens means that the left are in the political ascendant and therefore, if you want to win get on the left bandwagon. There is a mistaken notion that because the Teals are climate change addicts, they're somehow of the left. That is a nonsense. Indeed, I was encouraged to read that Allegra Spender's argument, I quote her, we still have a significant deficit. Budget repair has to be one of the priorities. You don't fix everything by just more money. Big announcements, she said, throughout the campaign were all like, we're going to give this more money. She said, that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting to the heart of the problem. It just means you're spending more money, unquote. Allegra Spender. Hardly a left-wing comment. Back to this business about the left in the ascendant. Labor and the Greens have improved their numbers 
in the federal parliament, but not their primary vote. As Peter Harcher has pointed out, Labor's primary vote fell from 4.75 million in 2019 to 4.15 million last week, a loss of 600,000 votes for Labor. And while the Greens did increase their primary vote, it was by a meagre 4,000. So the left, regarded as Labor and the Greens, improved their numbers in the House of Representatives, but lost more than half a million votes combined since the last federal election. In other words, the Australian people didn't move to the left last Saturday week. Of course, the coalition were hammered, 5.9 million votes in 2019 to 4.5 million last week, a loss of 1.4 million votes. Or put another way, 22% fewer people voted for the coalition this year than they did in 2019. The picture for Labor, if they are the left, is just as dire. Labor got 32.8% of the vote. Even Rudd, when he was hammered in 2013 by Tony Abbott, got 33.3%. And Mark Latham in 2004 got 37.6%. Someone in the Liberal Party had better answer a simple question. Why has the coalition vote dropped at every election since Tony Abbott's landslide in 2013 as the Libs moved further to the left? Abbott gained 45.55% of the primary vote in 2013. Turnbull made a mess of that in 2016, 42.04%, and downhill it kept going. Morrison in 2019, 41.44%, and then last Saturday, 36.2%. The Frydenberg story is staggering, and it can't be attributed to the Teals because they weren't there at the last election. In 2016, Frydenberg's primary vote, primary, not two-party preferred, was 5822 by 2019, it had crashed to 49.41 and then devoted to Scott Morrison last Saturday week, 42.98. The Liberal Party in Victoria was once the jewel in the Liberal crown. They now hold eight out of 39 seats and Labor, with a record under Daniel Andrews and the pandemic that you wouldn't want to own up to, has 24 of the 39 federal seats. And just on the so-called lurch to the left, and acknowledging that Labor and the Greens are seen as of the left, in Queensland, while the Coalition had a statewide swing against it of 3.8%, which was above the national swing of 3.39, it still holds the Coalition 21 seats. Labor has five. It's the smallest proportion of Queensland seats of any incoming federal government. Hardly a vote for the left. As the Griffith University political scientist, Dr Paul Williams has said, quote, Albanese, plain and simple, doesn't have Queensland behind him. So putting a Queenslander in charge of the coalition may well be a masterstroke. But if the argument about the movement of the left has any validity, how on earth do you explain, after endless visits by Mr Albanese to Queensland and the talk that he was going to win 10 seats up there, and despite the coalition suffering one of the biggest swings in Queensland, it looks like Labor will come out of the May 21 election in Queensland with five of the 30 seats, the smallest representation from Labor in Queensland since it was reduced to two MPs when John Howard first swept to power in 1996. Anthony Albanese, as the new Prime Minister, has had a good work first week. But when they sit down to look at the figures, it's not an encouraging story. 500,000 more people voted for Bill Shorten than voted for Anthony Albanese. And when Mark Latham lost in 2004, 1.3 million more people 
voted for Mark Latham's Labor than voted for Labor last Saturday week. 1.3 million. Yes, the Liberal Party have problems. But as I've said, there was no lurch to the left. While the Coalition has lost 1.3 million votes between 2019 and last week, Labor have lost 1.3 million since Mark Latham was beaten in 2004. There is no comfort in the figures for either major party. But if the Liberal Party thinks that the vote on May 21 indicated that Australia had moved to the left, then that is a nonsense. It's to be hoped the people doing the post-mortems for the Liberal Party aren't swept up by this fallacious notion that going left will win votes. The only way to win votes is by working out what the Liberal Party truly stands for and fashioning policies accordingly. But are there enough people running the show who understand that? Now, look, Daniel Wilde is the Director of Research at the Institute of Public Affairs. The good news for Labor is that they are in government on one of the rare occasions in Australian political history where a Labor leader has taken his party from opposition into government. But that's about the end of the good news. As they say, the rubber has already hit the road. There is a new leader of the Liberal Party, a common sense bloke, no spin merchant, Peter Dutton. Daniel Wilde, basing his comments on splendid research, has made the simple point four days ago. Quote, the first act of Peter Dutton as new leader of the Liberal Party must be to scrap its commitment to net zero, which disproportionately hits the jobs and income of working Australians in the regions and suburbs. That's based on research. It's what I called spot on. Daniel Wilde joins me. Daniel, thank you for your time. Uh, I note only today the beaten North Sydney Liberal Trent Zimmerman is telling the Liberal Party to embrace Labor's 43% emissions reduction target if it wants to win back, quote, the Liberal Party's progressive heartland at the next federal election. None of these comments, Daniel, are based on any research. No, they're not, Alan, and thank you very much for, for having me. It's great to be with you, and you, you're dead right. Uh, Trent Zimmerman's comments, I think, exemplify the attitude of the inner-city elite, whether they're on the left or the right, of the political spectrum when it comes to climate policy. Uh, what we've identified with our research is that a, a typical worker in regional Australia is over three times more likely to lose their job as a result of net zero than a typical worker in the inner cities. And this gets to the fundamental point that the policy of net zero is a policy designed by and for the cosseted wealthy inner city elites. These are, you know, public servants, big business bureaucrats. They're in well-paid, protected jobs. They're not going to suffer the negative consequences of net zero. They're able to afford the higher power prices. They're not in communities like Gladstone or Rockhampton or in Mackay. Uh, who are going to have their communities destroyed by the policy of net zero. It's those living in the regions and the outer metropolitan parts of our major cities that are going to incur the major costs. And that's exactly where the Liberal Party needs to be going. It needs to abandon and forget about these inner city teal seats and win those dozens and dozens of seats in the outer metropolitan parts of our major cities, because that is the true heartland. They talk about the Liberal heartland in Kuyong. Well, the Australian heartland is not in Kuyong. The Australian uh, heartland is in regional Australia and in those communities that I mentioned. Absolutely. Alan. Daniel, isn't it true, though, we've already been warned about the certain explosion to household electricity bills? Only last month, we were told in an update from the Australian energy market operator, which runs the electricity grid, that the East Coast wholesale price 
of electricity had jumped 141%. The price of coal had escalated due to the Russian war in Ukraine. And as I indicated last week, Lisa Zembrot from Schneider Electric, one of Australia's largest corporate energy advisors, has said there is no doubt power bills will increase and prices will need to reflect the increases we've seen in the wholesale market. But Daniel, the New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane and Adam Bant and the Teals want to ban all fossil fuels by 2030. How mad is that? Yeah, you're, you're right, Alan. What is happening is a massive destabilisation of our energy grid. Australia used to have among the cheapest electricity prices in the world. Now we've got the most expensive electricity prices in the developed world. And that's a direct and immediate consequence of the policy uh, of net zero emissions, which is pushing coal-fired power stations off the grid. And of course, coal goes 24-7, rain, hail or shine. And it's pushing on these intermittent, unreliable wind and solar um, energy generation. Uh, Alan, you mentioned uh, uh, Ukraine and what's been happening in, in Eastern Europe. The important point to remember about that, and this goes to everything we're, we're talking about, is Australia didn't send Ukraine 70,000 tonnes of solar panels. Right? We sent them 70,000 tonnes of coal in order to support That's their right. war effort against Russia. That's right. And this gets to a much broader point, which is it's not just prices, it's not just jobs. It gets to our fundamental capacity to defend ourselves in a part of the world, the Asia-Pacific region, that is becoming increasingly uncertain and increasingly hostile. We've got over 2,000 years' worth of coal, which is right here beneath our feet. We don't need the permission of any other government to use our coal, to use our gas, uh, to use our oil, yet under net zero, and our uranium. all of that is going to go away. And our uranium. And the uranium. And you're quite right, we've got about a third of the world's uh, uranium supplies. We should be removing the ban uh, on nuclear power um, in Australia. But in, instead, with net zero, we're going to be outsourcing our electricity infrastructure mm. to places like China, which has almost a monopoly That's on the it. world supply yeah, of, they, of rare earth minerals. They, so, they'll, they'll make the wind turbines and they'll make the solar. Your IPA, talking about research, conducted a survey recently, very interesting. And you ask people, how much are you willing to pay each year in order to reduce emissions to zero by 2050? 42% said nothing. There's your chart uh, on your screen. 42% said nothing. 30% said 50 bucks a year. 20% said 100. Only 5% said 500 and only 3% said more than 500. So 92% of Australians were only willing to pay a maximum of $100 a year. We were warned last year that the energy bills minimum, uh, last week, the en energy bills minimum will increase by almost $300. That's right, Alan. What we know about net zero, and you've put your finger on something very significant here, is at a headline level, people like the idea of net zero. They like the sound of it because it sounds good. You know, it sounds like we're going to protect the environment, we're going to avert catastrophic global warming, and we're going to have all of these new green jobs they talk about. There's no new green jobs here, but that's what they tell us about. But when we dig underneath the surface and we say, okay, how much are you personally willing uh, to pay? How much are you willing to reach into your own back pocket for Australia to meet net zero, for Australia to cut its emissions? Australians are not willing to pay, no. as you say, 92% will pay a maximum of 100 bucks a year, which is a cup of coffee every that's fortnight that they're willing it. to pay. So if, some, if someone else is paying, then that's fine. But when we ask how much are you willing to pay, the support just isn't there. So the more that we dig beneath the surface, what does this mean for your jobs? 
What does this mean for your power bills? My what word. does this mean for Australia's national security? That's the rubber Where hitting the road. This, people don't pack it in. That's the rubber hitting the road. So you've said Peter Dutton must scrap the commitment to net zero. And if he fails to do that, the National Party should say that the price of any coalition deal is the abandonment of net zero. Little Proud today has said, we are going net zero. <laughs> it's going to drive up power prices for families and small businesses. And it's all predicated on the fact that renewables will create jobs. Hello. Tell us about that. Well, Alan, there's two key points to make here. So the new leader of the Nationals Party, his seat is Maranoa. And our analysis showed that Maranoa will be the second hardest hit electorate in Australia by a policy of net zero in terms of the number of jobs put at risk. What we found is over 20% of all jobs in Maranoa will be put at risk by a policy of net zero. That is second only to the um, electorate of Flynn, which takes in uh, the area of Gladstone. Um, the second point I want to make here, Alan, is, as I mentioned a moment ago, we're told about these new green jobs, but they don't exist. We did some analysis on this very issue, and what we found is that over the last decade, for every one job created in the renewable sector, five jobs in the manufacturing sector have been destroyed. These new jobs simply don't come online. We're told about the billions of investment in renewables. We're told about all this new green economy we're going to have in this country, but it doesn't exist. And the tragedy is this. When those jobs go in Rockhampton, in Gladstone, in the electorate of Maranoa, they ain't coming back. No. And you're saying this is the beginning of widespread devastation throughout the Hunter region. I mean, already, as you said, for every one green job created over the past decade, five have been destroyed. So if we're demonising coal, why then is the federal government sending, as you said, 70,000 tonnes of it to Ukraine to support their military and defence efforts? So Tony Abbott was right, wasn't he, when he said in 2014, and you've reminded us of this, at the opening of the Cavill Ridge coal mine in central Queensland, Abbott said, coal is good for humanity and coal is vital for the future energy needs of the world, so let's have no demonisation of coal. I mean, how much has the collapse in the Liberal primary vote from 45.5% under Abbott in 2013 to 36.2% on May 21 under Morrison, how much is it due to the drift to the left and these nonsense policies? Well, I would argue it's almost entirely due to the drift to the left. I think many Australians were wondering in the lead up to the 2022 election, what is it that the Liberal Party stands for these days? We know that the policy of net zero was done primarily to keep those inner city seats. And how did that work out? They lost all of them. They lost all those seats in the inner city, Melbourne yes. and Sydney and Brisbane and Perth and Adelaide. Um, the Victorian Liberals, as an example, uh, Alan, they are only now a few hundred votes away from not having a single seat with tram tracks running through it. That gives you an indication of how the, their yeah. vote in the inner city has collapsed. And again, that is with the policy of net zero. That is with tacking to the left. And the fundamental point is you're never going to outlift the left. No. They will always go one step further than you. And as you just mentioned at the top of our discussion, they're now pushing for even more reckless policies of a 2030 target. Forget about 2050, they're talking oh, about yes. 2030, yes. going further Band. and further. Yep. And the reality is quite simply, as, as Tony Abbott said, you've got to go to the outer suburbs and you've got to go to the regions. That is the future. So summing up, I mean, is there a total disconnect between the political class and mainstream Australians? Yes. And unfortunately, Alan, not just the political class, but many of the other major yes. institutions of corporate, our society, whether it's big media. business. Yeah. 
banks, the elite media, uh, international financial institutions, educate like universities, schools, and sporting codes, places of worship. They're increasingly becoming detached from the values and aspirations of what Menzies called the forgotten people, Howard's battlers, Tony's tradies. Um, these are the peoples whose values are no longer reflected in the major institutions of our society. And it's exactly those people that the Liberal and National Parties need to be speaking to. Mm. They need to be going yeah. into the Labor heartland, whether it's out in Werriwa or whether it's out in Scullin. Mm. They need to be going to these people and giving them a voice in our democratic system. Well, of course, all this stuff that's articulated by these so-called leaders is completely unresearched. It's just following the fashionable line. I know you have done a survey as recently as March. 72% of those surveyed said they believe reliability or affordability should be the focus of energy policy. And only 28% said meeting net zero emissions by 2050 should be the focus. So just finally, Daniel, we've got a whole list of coal-fired power stations that are now scheduled to close down. What in the next 15 years? What is the consequence for Australia? Oh, it'll be catastrophic. Absolutely catastrophic. We're, we're going to meet a crunch point in the next few years when these coal-fired power stations come off and when there's nothing there to replace them. And that's going to be massive hikes to power prices. It's going to increase the risk of mm. blackouts. It's going to mean that we can't sustain a sovereign manufacturing capability. As I say, in a world that's becoming increasingly hostile and more uncertain, we need to have 24-7 reliable power so we can have the industrial capacity to produce the things that we need in a world where we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know Good whether international supply Good chains are going to be available to us. No. We saw this in COVID-19 when we could not manufacture our own protective equipment. This could get much, much worse. And that is why we need to keep coal on and get rid of net zero. Dutton and Littlewood, right. Little Proud, they've got to get rid of net zero and they've got to do it now. Great stuff, Daniel. Outstanding. And we'll talk to you often. Uh, wonderful insights. And I've got to tell you, you've heard me, our viewers, I regard what Daniel Wilder said as 100% correct. I've called it a national economic suicide note. I think Daniel called it self-sabotage. Thanks for your time, Daniel. We'll talk again shortly. There he is, Daniel My pleasure, Wilder, Alan. Research you. Director, not at all, of the Institute of Public Affairs. Well, the counting of political numbers today is everywhere. Most importantly, the Liberal candidate for Gilmore, Andrew Constance, who has won a massive swing of over 13%, has fallen behind by 142 votes on the two party preferred, but only 86% of votes have been counted as at midday today, so there is still hope for a very good candidate, Andrew Constance. Meanwhile, Peter Dutton has been confirmed as Liberal leader. He'll do an excellent job. I'm all for women in positions of leadership, but the two women have been voted as deputies for the Liberal and National Party are virtually unknown. And in the case of the National Party, this Perrin Davey has been in the Parliament for three years. But a word on this fellow David Littleproud, who is the new leader of the National Party, supported by Michael McCormack and his trenchant criticism of Barnaby Joyce. I don't know what barometer social media is, but it climbed into McCormack over the comments McCormack made about Barnaby Joyce at the weekend. When McCormack led the Nationals in 2019, the swings against some candidates were astronomical. But anyway, back to this David Littleproud. Rarely has someone come into the Parliament with so much vaulting ambition and so little ability. I said last week when the bush was faced with appalling drought in 2019, I remember asking Little Proud as Minister for Agriculture with 250,000 public servants in Canberra, 
to provide an inventory of the victims of drought and bushfires so that they could be specifically targeted, their problems identified and support made available. The list never eventuated. What is worse is a bio of Little Proud on his own website. It makes no mention of the fact that he spent 17 years with the National Australia Bank and then worked for Suncorp in agribusiness banking. In other words, Little Proud was a banker. And I remember when farmers during the drought had their businesses shut down because the banks revalued farms. I fought tooth and nail for these farmers and pleasingly won a few cases. I remember thumping an expensive maple wood table in the office of one of these NAB people, one of Little Proud's mates, because the tactic was this. The farmer had a property valued at, say, $5 million. But of course, with drought, year after year, the place started to look like 10,000 acres of dirt. The banks, in what was nothing more than disgraceful behaviour, sent around their pallbearers to revalue the property. Now, if you had no rain for five years, what do you reckon the $5 million property would be worth? So they revalued it at, say, $2 million. So the new value of the property, according to the bank, was suddenly less than what the poor bloody farmer owed the bank. So the farm was repossessed. Take the keys, tip him out. The banks then wait for the good times and sell up at a massive profit to the banks. Reprehensible stuff. I fought this battle almost single-handedly and thankfully, some banks had to give the keys back. Little Proud was an NAB and Suncorp banker, not on the farmer's side. In the recent election, he was missing on the campaign trail. Barnaby was out there not only fighting to hold seats, but trying to win them. Little Proud stuck to himself. Joyce, the best retail politician in the game, was all over Australia backing candidates. Where was Little Proud? Where was McCormack? Or were they hoping the Nationals would lose some seats to strengthen their avaricious grab for the leadership? Well, today, the Nats have bought themselves a new problem. Because Barnaby Joyce, Matt Canavan and Dr David Gillespie are virtually the National Party's war chest. They raised the money that funded almost everyone else's campaigns, particularly those in the retiring seats of Nichols, Flynn and Dawson. Can Little Proud do that and raise money for the Nats? Never. In politics, people talk. Ben Franklin is one of those fake Nats. He was in the Liberal Party. I'm told he was doing everything to get Little Proud into the leadership which he hoped would then cause a by-election in Barnaby Joyce's seat of New England, and they could then install Adam Marshall. Machiavellian, Machiavellian stuff. Well, the recent difficulty in coalition politics, and the Liberals faced this with Turnbull, Tony Abbott was never given a chance, while Turnbull knifed him and undermined him at every turn. I remember warning Tony Abbott that this would lead to his removal, but Turnbull was a former leader, and Tony Abbott felt the party owed a loyalty to a former leader. The loyalty was never reciprocated. If the National Party wants to grow rather than wither, it won't happen under people like Little Proud or McCormack. They are plotters, not leaders. I know a stack of people in the bush. There's not one I know who'll tell me that Little Proud is there for the farmer or the bushy, but they will tell me he's there to use the party as an instrument to advance his own misplaced ambition. Today, instead of removing the political cancers, the National Party has rewarded them. To the Bush, and I think I've done more for the Bush than a little proud, all I can say is this, net zero, here we come, and with it, the sad eclipse of the National Party. 
Look, I think it goes without saying that Mark Latham is one of those rare political beasts who says it as it is. If you go to the ADH website, adh.tv, and click on columnists, you'll find an outstanding piece by Mark Latham in relation to the recent election. I'll shortly have something to say about the role of the media. I made mention last week that few of them got it right, and you've got to wonder why. And as you know, I told you on the Thursday before the election that Scott Morrison couldn't win and that I believed Albanese would get the eight seats needed to govern. But as Mark Latham writes, quote, despite the failure of the major parties to address the important issues facing the nation, the mainstream media were as wedded to the major political parties as ever, unquote. Mark joins me because I also want to raise with him not only this issue, but dishonesty over the teacher shortage in New South Wales within the New South Wales Education Department. But firstly, the election, Mark, how come the media again have failed to identify the public mood? Well, they're very much wedded to the major parties, Alan. Um, for those of us who've, who've been in Canberra over the years, um, the major parties feed their stories into certain media outlets who run them, so you get a symbiotic relationship there. They rely on each other. It's a scratch my back, I'll scratch your back situation, and uh, they can't see beyond the failings of the major parties. It was a remarkable election campaign because in terms of budget repair, productivity, school reform, um, national security, a whole range of issues uh, that are of paramount importance to the country's future, uh, the two major parties, Albanese and, uh, and Morrison, didn't put up viable, detailed solutions. And the public mood very much was uh, put the major parties last, a pox on both their houses, but this wasn't reflected in the mainstream media where certain outlets stuck with the Labor Party, we know who they are, certain outlets stuck with the Liberal Party, they're also as clearly identified, and um, the media missed the message and that the public your, was giving coming to your they wanted party, a, a logical alternative. Coming to your party, it always fascinates me that at every turn in between elections, the media want to use you and Pauline Hanson because the public love what you say, and then come election time, they ignore you. Yeah, well, I suppose that's Sky News, and I, I know it's Sky News, Alan. You paid the price for being 100% honest and 100% accurate. Um, also other media outlets, but it's true. They use up One Nation in between election time, but come their editorials and their coverage in the campaign, it's very much in favour of uh, the Liberal Party at um, Sky News. You saw that in all the programs there and um, obviously at the ABC, the, the old, what we used to call the old Fairfax Empire, they're very much for the Labor Party. So One Nation gets squeezed out at that point. So you know, these mainstream outlets, there was a story today in one of the papers of how TV ratings have fallen away, people looking for alternatives like your program. Mm. Uh, the mainstream media continues to decline because they continue to misread mm. and misunderstand and yep. ignore the public's message. You made the point, I've never seen the electorate so disengaged and disillusioned with politics. You said in the 1980s, 90% of people would take how-to-vote cards on the way to the polling booth. This is now down to 50%, with many determined to shun the process. What is the state of our democracy, Mark, when a party can win government with 32% of the vote? Two-thirds wanted someone else. Well, it's dismal. Yeah, it's dismal, Alan. To stand on the polling booths now is a very dispiriting experience um, compared to... Say 1980, that was my first federal election where I, I handed out. 95% of people would take one of the how to votes and, and some would take them all. But now that's down to 50%. Who are the other 50%? The, 
people on the booze ponder. Who are they going straight in? They're not people who've got fixed in their mind what they're already going to do. They're mainly people who are voting informal, and that proportion is very high. The donkey vote or some form of protest vote against the major parties. Um, they're the people going in seemingly uh, with no interest in, in, in taking the how to votes and very little interest in the major party. So the state of our democracy is weak. And what I put this down to, and I think Morrison was a classic example, politicians failing to explain the truth. You see, the art of persuasion in politics is just about lost. How many things did Morrison educate the public about? Did he ever tell the truth about climate change, where it's a dominant Chinese issue, Australia really can't do much? Did he ever try and go out and say, because it rains too much or it doesn't rain enough, that's not climate change, it's called weather? I mean, Morrison was an abject failure in trying to educate the public about anything. And he paid the price, and I think Albanese will be just as bad. Well, the economy, just come to that talking about educating the public, a trillion dollars of debt for grandkids to pay off, and then you've got this net zero carbon emissions, which is going to be self-sabotage, as I've called it, a national economic suicide note. I raised this with Daniel Wilde earlier, but in the light of changing circumstances, do Labor and the Liberals actually think they can save the planet from climate change when China is increasing, increasing its carbon emissions by an amount greater than the entire Australian output? Yeah, well, it's a very strange public mood in these so-called teal electorates and the electorates that have been won by the Greens, the electorates that have been won by the Labor Party. And indeed, in, in, when you hear senior coalition figures like Matt Keane talk about it, Alan, there is a God complex. They do think that Australia, with 1.3% of global emissions, can save the planet. And there's a disconnect from reality. Uh, unfortunately, in the public debate now, everything that happens is climate change. Rain too much, not enough climate change. Wind blows too hard, not <laughs> yeah, enough climate change. Right. We have bushfires, no bushfires, yeah. climate change. Everything now yes. is climate change when you wouldn't need a very high IQ to know, hang on, that's just the weather or in terms of too much rainfall, it's La Nina, weather effect, uh, structural cycle that we have. So that's one big problem. But the other one is this God complex of thinking little old Australia with 1.3% of emissions can save the planet when, as you've pointed out, China increases its emissions annually more than our total. And the so, former, you know, all those two, uh, and, and they they say, I, I what, pointed out, they're running in the wrong spot. I mean, they needed the run in Beijing. Yeah, that's right. And they say, what about the science? Well, the former chief scientist, Alan Finkel, said Australia's climate policies will have, quote, virtually no impact on global temperatures. But your point is that Morrison didn't explain that to the people. Where, where do you think we're heading, Mark? Well, there will be a tipping point. In politics, there's always a correction when the system lurches too far one way uh, based on, 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 on myth and emotion rather than fact. And I think the tipping point will come with blackouts, Alan. Uh, we've seen the early closure of Liddell Power Station, Araring, the news today about the um, green activists taking over AGL. That will bring forward the early closure of uh, Bayswater Power Station there at Muzzlebrook in the Hunter Valley. And we're not prepared. Um, the system, Matt Keane and, and I'd say Chris Bowen, the new uh, energy and climate minister in the Albanese government, they're not prepared for the reality of working out how Absolutely. you keep the lights on when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not Absolutely. shining. So that will be the tipping point. Uh, the, the wealthy teals, the well-heeled wealthy teals and everyone else who's been screaming climate change 
they'll get the shock of the life of their life when <laughs> the lights go out Absolutely. and they won't know what to do. Uh, particularly the traffic lights. Just think about that in major cities around Australia. To this Department of Education, this, I know it's an overused word, scandal. This is a scandalous. You've been trying to find out the true cause of the teacher crisis in New South Wales. And as you say, quote, we know that students have been left in the playground without teacher supervision. They've been sent to the library to read books and they've been sent home early. Some schools close early in the day because they don't have enough teachers. We know the problems that students went through during COVID and the lockdown with no face-to-face -face teaching. You say in some schools, whole year groups have been told to stay at home. But you say the government has not been honest about the teacher crisis, uh, put it another way. Have they been dishonest? Well, fundamentally, absolutely dishonest uh, and secretive. And it took a leaked email uh, to me to show that uh, despite what um, the, the minister and the officials were saying at budget estimates, that 9,000 emails had gone out um, to um, uh, staff, mainly casual teachers, saying that they weren't uh, attested for vaccination, they couldn't set foot in a school. Now, 9,000 is a huge number. And it only became public because of an email that was given to me. And these were officials who'd sent this email out and they knew the 9,000 uh, uh, teachers were unattested. They couldn't go into schools. And six or seven days later at the budget estimate saying, oh, no, it's just a couple of hundred. There's only a couple of hundred teachers here haven't got vaccinated. Our vaccination rate for teachers is 99%. The Minister, Sarah Mitchell, said that repeatedly in the upper house of the New South Wales Parliament. It turns out the rate was the same as the general public, 95%. And we have missed thousands of teachers in our schools because of these workplace mandates hanging on way too long. They should be off now, Alan. I mean, you can go to a football match, there's 20,000 people there. Nobody gives two hoots about COVID. Why haven't we got all the teachers in front of the classroom giving the children a full day of education? But, Mark, the wider issue here, more important... You're telling me that a minister has virtually lied to the parliament. Oh, yes, misled the parliament about the vaccination rate, sat there mute when officials told us uh, falsehoods about how many teachers were affected by the mandates. Now, you can have an argument about uh, the mandates and how useful they were at the beginning of the process. I don't think anyone can argue they're needed right now. But Minister Sarah Mitchell had to be honest enough to say yes, we're requiring vaccination, but the downside will be thousands of teachers lost to the system. And why have we got teacher shortages in New South Wales? We used to have a reserve army of teachers called casuals. You can go to any school, there's always a casuals there saying, oh, I'm filling in today, but I'd love more work. I'd love to become a permanent. We lost that reserve army of casual teachers in New South Wales, some 9,000 of them who logically would have filled in and meant that instead of kids sitting in the playground unattended or schools closing early, or kids being sent to the library to entertain themselves, they would have had a teacher in the front of them stuff. in the classroom. Staggering and it's a scandal stuff. and a disgrace that yep. Sarah Mitchell did this. Absolutely, it's a disgrace that she's still there as a minister. I mean, oh, under yeah, Westminster well, system... Lying in politics is no longer a sin now, no, and you don't get sacked for no, it. In no. fact, the lies have well, become institutionalised. It, it, it's lying to the parliament, it's lying to the parents, it's lying to the students, and it's lying to the public. Mark, we'll, we've run out of time here, but I want to resume this with you next week in particular to ask you how many teachers are still willing to teach but unable to enter the classroom. But thank you for the wonderful work you do. Ab absolutely outstanding. We love talking to you, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me on. There's Mark Latham. Isn't that astonishing? Well, as you know, I mentioned last week there's a veritable army of journalists in Canberra whose professional purpose is to keep the Australian voting public and those interested in politics accurately informed. 
Yet right up until Election Day, there was barely a journalist across the country who was prepared to say, if I'm allowed to be immodest, as I said over and over again, that Morrison couldn't get 76 seats. As you know, I made that clear in my Thursday broadcast on the eve of the election. I outlined where I believed the coalition was in trouble, and with the exception of my comments on Tasmania, those observations were also correct. I made the point that the real question of the election was whether Albanese could get to 76, and on the Thursday before the vote, I told you, my viewers, that I believed he could. Why am I telling you this now? Well, also last week, I interviewed Professor James Allen, the Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland. He was talking about the crisis in the Liberal Party, which is not my subject right now. Professor Allen, though, has pointed to the American polling operation Rasmussen. And as he rightly says, over the past two presidential elections, they've been pretty accurate, indeed more accurate than many left-leaning pollsters. And he now tells us that Rasmussen released a survey in America last week, as it turns out, of 1,000 likely US voters. The survey was conducted on May 11, 12. The poll showed, amongst other things, that 80% of voters believe that, quote-unquote, fake news is a serious problem in the media. 56% said it was very serious. Nine in ten Republicans, perhaps understandably, said it was a serious problem. Well, how much fake news were we served up during the six-week election campaign? Why would 58% of American voters agree with the proposal that the mainstream media are, quote, the enemy of the people? As Professor Allen argues, it's hard to see how any other cohort of Americans, including politicians, could be held in lower esteem or viewed with more contempt than members of the press. Now, of course, Australians know all about this. We were fed hours and hours of fear and alarmism and hysteria over coronavirus and a greater fear that none of what we were being told could be challenged. And as you know, anyone who dared to challenge was attacked, silenced and condemned. As Professor Alan argues, quote, almost nowhere did you see a questioning set of journalists who doubted the lines they were being fed by heavy-handed governments, unquote. And that, of course, is true. Anything criticising what was spewed out by public health officials was largely rubbished. And indeed, dare to disagree and you were cancelled. Professor Allen makes very specific observations about the police. Like Professor Allen, I have always supported the police because of the difficult work they do, the poor pay they receive, and the way in which some treat them and abuse them, especially female police officers. Like Professor Allen, I've always argued that the police have a tough job, which they perform very well under difficult circumstances. But then Professor Allen says this, and I quote, go back and watch again police in this country manhandle a pregnant woman, kick and attack lockdown protesters, spray them with pepper spray, throw to the ground a man at an airport, seemingly minding his own business. The list of egregious examples of policing, according to the we are here to enforce these brutal, illegal, quibbling, despotic COVID rules as strictly and as uncharitably as we can, unquote. Now, of course, this wasn't all police. But you might remember in the streets of Sydney, people woke to see police with guns, armed. The very thing that many, many residents, especially in southwest Sydney, had left European countries in order to escape. Who in the media challenged this on behalf of the public? Professor Allen asks the question that needs to be asked. Why is the vast preponderance of young journalists activists for the left? We know the answer. But who's going to address the problem? 
Huge chunks of university departments around the Anglosphere have been captured by the left and they call themselves moderates and progressives when in fact they're regressives and devotees of a left-wing political philosophy out of step with millions of Australians. Professor Allen is right when he says, quote, here in Australia it is plainly true that after nine years of coalition government, our universities are worse on every front, more bureaucratic, fewer conservative academics, far more woke and politically correct, lower standards, more affirmative action and a massive diversity bureaucracy, all brought to you while Liberal ministers were in office, unquote. And journalism departments, as he said, were not immune from that trend. So what conclusions do we draw? All this has happened under nine years of Liberal government. Indeed, the Liberal Party is the ultimate metaphor of the problem. Abbott in 2013 led 90 members into the National Parliament. He won 25 seats from Labor. But the media fell in love with Turnbull, who was the answer to every Liberal supporter's prayers. His left-wing cronies knifed Abbott and lost 14 seats. Morrison continued the trend to the left and lost another 18 seats. On current estimates, Peter Dutton will head a coalition of 57. I make that 33 fewer than Abbott's 90 in 2013. But the media demonise Abbott and glorify Turnbull. So back to that Rasmussen poll. 80% of Americans believe fake news is a problem. Well, you watch. Dutton will be maligned. The worst possible spin will be put on what he does and says. How much of that will be fake news? Well, you didn't get any of that here on ADH TV before the May 21 election, and you won't get it here now. Well, before we go, as we go into this week, we will have passed the 100-day mark of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, so far botched, but still with terrible casualties. There is no doubt that Russia did not expect the pushback it's had to endure. Sadly, not too many in the international community have come to the aid of Ukraine. The UK is probably their strongest ally. The rest of the Western world, including the EU, have dealt in empty platitudes. Kind and caring words don't win a war. This illegal invasion was a huge error by Russia. Not only do we live in the age of social media, where it's now impossible for a regime to get away with such brutality, the Russian army have been exposed as a rust bucket. In other words, all gear and no idea. They were stationed at the borders for weeks on end, waiting for the green light to attack. But once they got it, they've not had too many wins. Importantly, Putin has done Russia a huge disservice, especially when it comes to being on the world stage. No one wants to touch Russia with a 10-foot barge pole. Some of the tough times we're all facing today, including to an extent inflation, high petrol prices, and now this news about a global food shortage, which I'll talk about tomorrow, thanks to Russia blocking wheat exports from Ukraine. Much of this is because of Putin. Well, as we pass the 100-day mark, two camps are now emerging. The first is the peace camp. This group basically believes in appeasement, that is, halt the fighting and start negotiations as soon as possible. And when these people say negotiations, what they mean is give Russia the land they've conquered thus far. It's medieval stuff and should have no place in the year 2022. A big name in the foreign policy field who falls into this peace category is the former US Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Now 99, Kissinger is the oldest living former US cabinet member and the last surviving member of Richard Nixon's cabinet. Well, the second camp is the justice camp. 
People in this camp believe Russia should pay a price for the brutality and upheaval it's unleashed on Ukraine. So why shouldn't Putin pay dearly for his aggression? It doesn't help that America's Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin said last month after visiting Kiev that the West should help Ukraine, quote, win and, quote, unquote, weaken Russia. Well, that was last month. But as I told my viewers last week, Biden's administration doesn't know whether they're Arthur or Martha when it comes to foreign policy, let alone understanding their own policies in relation to these pressing international challenges. Because three weeks after these comments, Austin changed tack and fell into the peace camp by calling for an immediate ceasefire following a phone call with his Russian counterpart. As Ukraine's President Zelensky told a forum last week, the future of Ukraine is tied to how willing the West are to be strong and united in their defence of Ukraine. If they aren't, and countries like Germany, Italy and France have all gone weak, then Ukraine will struggle. As Olga Olika of the International Crisis Group has said, quote, the Ukrainians are negotiating with their Western partners as much as, and probably more than, they're negotiating with the Russians, unquote. And therein lies the problem, doesn't it? Weak Western political leadership. It is sadly the root of many of our issues today. That's it from me tonight. I'll see you again tomorrow night on the big TV via the app ADH TV, or you can still watch on the website ADH.TV. Thanks for being with us tonight. Good night.